Tonight we're talking about Romans chapter 6. Um, you remember last week I mentioned the very end of chapter 5 leads Paul to this objection that he anticipates, which is, what shall we say then? Shall we just go on sinning so that there'd be more and more grace or that grace would abound? And as I said, if, if you didn't expect that, then maybe you don't really understand how big a deal grace really is. That's what I'll be talking about tonight. How big a deal grace really is. Because grace doesn't just make us look different in God's sight. It actually changes us. Now, I remember when I was your age, this was one of the things that really was, was difficult for me. It was one of the things that really made me struggle and wrestle with being a Christian. I'd gotten converted maybe around ninth grade, and I basically had, had been taught, well, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to do all these things, um, and, and if you just do them, you know, then things will get better, and you'll change gradually, bit by bit. And then I got to college, and I got around some Christians who were like, no, 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 you shouldn't have to really try and and, and work hard to do all those things. No, you just need to let go and let God just lean into what he's done for you and don't, don't worry about it, don't think about it, don't fight, just let go and let God kind of flow through you. And you know what I found? Like trying to get out of the way is actually more work than trying to read your Bible. <laughs> and especially if you're at all morbidly introspective, you might ask the question, have I really gotten out of the way enough for God to really work in my life. And it was really around my senior year when I began to decide I needed to dig into some theology that I began to realize that what the Bible says about how you grow in Christ is not either one of those. It's not just about working your butt off through your own effort, but it's also not just letting go and letting God like flow through you. Romans chapter 6 is actually one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible on what does it mean, what is our role, how are we actually to pursue sanctification? That's a big word, sanctification. We've been talking about this word justification, which means to be beautiful in God's sight. And in the first five chapters of Romans, this is what Paul has been talking about. We were not beautiful in God's sight, but God did something tremendous, stupendous with Jesus at the cross. He took the punishment we deserved. He gave us the beauty of his righteousness. And now we are beautiful in God's sight. And that has been secured by the work of Christ. But here in chapter 6, he opens up this other important idea, which is, well, how does that how does that truth, that knowledge, that beautiful reality, how does that actually begin to change us, to transform us? This is what we call sanctification. And as I was starting to read books, I was going to used bookstores when I was there in college, and I was trying to, to figure out what I believed about things like predestination. You know, we mentioned that at, the other night at our little open question discussion time. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But I was a little freaked out by that. I heard people that would talk about those sorts of things. And I was heard, had friends that talked about free will and talked about God's grace. And I, I was very confused about all this stuff. But as I began to dig into things, you know, here's what I found. 
I found that the people who talked about grace tended to also have the greatest longing for holiness. I remember I found a a book by this guy, Robert Murray McShane. I didn't know anything about him. Um, It was a red book. It was in a really cool bookstore. I'm talking really cool bookstore. Like it was in the basement of a church that George Whitfield had preached at in the 1700s. And in the basement was like this cool bookstore, right? And this book was red, not brown, like most of all the other books from the 1800s. And so it really stuck out. And it was only $2.50. And Robert Murray McShane, I knew he was Scottish. I knew he was Presbyterian. I didn't know much about what that meant. But I was like, okay, whatever. But he's Scottish, right? And as I looked at the book a little bit, Like, why did they write a book about this guy? Why did somebody preserve his memoir? Because after all, I realized looking at the book, he had died before he reached the age of 30. And I thought, well, that's enough for $2.50. I'm going to buy this book and read it. And guys, all I can tell you is the longing for holiness that comes through his journals, because what this book was, was basically his prayer journal that a friend edited and published after McShane had passed away, I was like, okay, I know he's Presbyterian. I know Presbyterians believe some things that I don't really know if I agree with, but if it creates this longing for holiness, then I'm going to give those those Presbyterians the benefit of the doubt while I'm trying to figure this stuff out. Because there's something that rings true to me about holiness that he longs for from the heart. It's not just superficial, And it's not just him like trying to pick himself up by his own bootstraps. It has everything to do with seeing Jesus as more beautiful and believable and wanting more and more and more of that. Now, we sang this hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It's really beautiful words, but you know what's really fascinating about this uh, hymn? It actually has some 23 or 24 verses. And actually, all of the verses are from the letters of a man named Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford lived back in the um, 1600s. He actually took part in writing this thing that we call the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you may have heard of that, others haven't, don't worry about it. But he took part in that, but then he got imprisoned. He got imprisoned by the English government um, because he didn't believe that the king was divinely appointed by God. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book about that. And so he got imprisoned in a place called Black Rock. And all of the verses of this hymn are taken from the letters that he wrote to his congregation while he, their pastor, was imprisoned in Black Rock. I highly commend it to you, the letters of Samuel Rutherford. And when you read it, it's amazing. Here, his longing for heaven, his longing to taste the beauty. I I love this one. Oh, Christ. Now imagine writing this while you're in prison. Oh, Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That little line, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land, that was the last words that he said as he was dying. He, He was asked, um, what, how is it with your soul? Basically, what do you see? Because as he was passing from this life to the next, 
this, this look came over his face and the people standing around said, what do you see? And he says, I see glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Now, I, I don't know, but I just, there's something about this longing for heaven that's deeper than his longing to be set free from prison that really struck me. And I wanted to know more about what was all that about? Where was that coming from? What does it mean that Christians are not just seen differently by God because of the gospel, but actually become different because of the gospel? That's what we're looking at tonight. And we're going to start reading there, Romans chapter 6. I'm going to pick up at verse 1. Remember, this is Paul's response to what he was just talking about, and I'll explain this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Oh, I'm thinking, speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now we're going to do more with the end of chapter 6 next week, so I'm going to just stop there for tonight. Let me pray, and then we will dig into what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6. Lord, we do thank you that you don't just um, clothe us in your righteousness, but you actually change us from the inside by your grace, by your gospel. Help us to understand that we, too, 
may fight against sin in hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, the first five chapters are about what God has done for us in the gospel. Now Paul it turns to describing what God does to us in the gospel. Because the gospel is not just about forgiving our sin. It is about the experience of being delivered from slavery to sin. But first, Paul needs to deal with this objection, right? That was raised by what he was talking about in chapter 5. Now, what's fascinating is he doesn't even really respond to the objection, right? Last week, you remember what he's talking about? You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And it's God's grace that unites you with Christ, that you die with him, live with him, or clothed in his righteousness. It's not something that you contributed to. And so then Paul expects people to say, well, if, if there's nothing that we do to earn God's grace, well, then why don't we just live however the hell we want? Right? And Paul says, basically, if you think that way, you've just revealed that you don't understand the first ABCs of the gospel. He basically scoffs at the idea. And what's interesting is, it logically makes sense. Like, if... If you don't have any reason to be afraid of God, then why would you live a straight and narrow kind of life, right? And what Paul says is, if you're thinking that way, you show that your heart has never been captured by the beauty of Christ. Like, the only people that would make such a calculation are people that actually, deep down, think the only reason to live a moral life is so that God doesn't zap them. That fear is what's actually the motivation for the way they live. And Paul says, that's so far from what God wants in the gospel, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. He just scoffs at it and says, God forbid. Ridiculous. Don't even think about it. And he doesn't really answer it. But again, it raises the question for us. Is your understanding of the good news, because that's literally what the word gospel means, is your understanding of the good news good enough? See, we should always check our understanding of the freeness of God's grace by whether or not it has the potential to raise this objection that Paul expects the true good news to raise. It's quite simple, really. If your understanding of God's grace does not threaten to completely remove fear as a motivation for the way you live, then you don't really get free grace. That's a strong thing. You, I don't want you to just walk out and be like, well, Kevin said it, huh, cool. No, I want you to wrestle with that. Do you believe that that's what Scripture here is teaching? Because I would contend that's what it's saying. That if your understanding of free grace doesn't threaten to remove fear as a motivation for how you live, then do you really understand how good the good news is? Right? But can we actually change? That's the heart of Romans 6. Can we actually change and grow to be more like Christ in how we love God and others? And Paul says, absolutely. Why? Because we have died to sin 
and have been raised to new life in Christ. Now, before we dig into what that means and why that connects the dots that way, you need to understand this. From Adam, this is back chapter 5, because Adam sinned, remember Paul said, all sinned. From Adam, though, also comes death. So what you need to understand is that mankind inherited from Adam guilt and pollution or brokenness. We're guilty in God's sight because the one who represented us sinned and we are seen as having sinned in him. And if you don't like that, remember, you can't get rid of the idea of having a representative without getting rid of the idea that Christ is your representative, okay? Now, you can go back and listen to the podcast, chapter 5. I don't want to go back through all that again. But the point is, what you get from Adam is guilt and brokenness, death beginning, actually. Both of those things come to us. Justification deals completely with our guilt. If you are united to Christ by faith, then your guilt was dealt with completely, instantaneously, the moment you believe. Your guilt was taken away, and you were clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. That is what's happened to your guilt if you're a Christian. But what about your brokenness? What about the corruption in your heart that expresses itself through your body and everything else? Well, that is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 6. And here's what's interesting and maybe a bit confusing. There's one aspect of that that is also dealt with instantaneously when you become a Christian, but there's another aspect of that corruption in your heart that is progressively being healed. Now, this is, this is a little difficult, but the way we see it here is the way Paul uses the past tense. The past tense in verse 3. Do you not know, he says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? It's something that happened. It's not something that happens over and over and over again. In verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then jump down to verse 6. He says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now, in the first century Roman context, you couldn't say it any stronger. Your old self was crucified. How do we make sense of that? Because we know that we still have all of this corruption. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to think that we don't have any corruption because down in verse 12, Paul has to exhort us Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So how can we say that we were crucified, our old self was crucified with Christ, and yet also he exhorts us to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Do you see? This is why it's confusing. And and what a a lot of people do is they tend to focus on one or the other. But I want you to see tonight that you have to have both of these things together to really make sense of the battle that is the Christian life. And you have to have both of these for you to stay energized and engaged 
in the battle against sin. Let me explain. What happened definitively when you became a Christian is that the dominion, the slavery that you were completely sold under to sin has been broken. It's not, it doesn't just like get a little, a little chink in its armor. It has been dealt with. You are no longer a slave to sin. That's the old self. The old self is you. It's Kevin Twit, slave to sin. And that person no longer exists. Yet, the presence of sin is still very powerfully at work. And it needs to be fought against, right? What does it mean when Paul says we've died to sin? He's talking about something definitively that happened. And what's interesting is we tend to think about growing in Christ as just like putting one foot in front of the other, kind of drudgery, right? But most of the time the New Testament talks about sanctification, it actually uses past tense language. And most Christians don't do justice to that. They think that all that happened when I became a Christian is that I became beautiful in God's sight, but nothing has actually changed with regard to my ability to fight against sin. And Paul's saying that is a lie from the pit of hell. You've died to sin. Your old self has been crucified. But you still need to fight against and not yield yourself to sin because the presence of sin is still powerfully at work in you. Theologians call this definitive and progressive sanctification. Definitive means something definitive and complete happened at conversion. You were justified, made beautiful in God's sight, but you also were transformed from being a slave to sin to being one who now struggles with sin. As a matter of fact, that guy, Robert Murray McShane, whose memoir I mentioned, one of my favorite lines from his book that just put everything together for me, he said this, he said, we have been set free to struggle. See, what was going on is I, I had these Christians over here that were saying the Christian life is just a struggle, but there's no real help. You just have to fight. You just have to fight. But don't worry. God looks at you as beautiful, but you still got to just kind of fight on your own and gut it out. And then I had these other people that were like, no, you're basically like a butterfly in Jesus now. You know, I know sometimes you forget and act like a worm, but you're really a butterfly and everything's perfect. You know, you, you're a new self. Listen, one of the best places to see how this fits together, Paul actually summarizes Romans 6 over in Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. I want to read it for you because this is helpful trying to get at what I'm, I'm explaining here. He says, where have I got it? Here. Oh, yeah, here it is. This is Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So we are genuinely new, but we're not perfectly new. That explains why you feel crazy and schizophrenic all the time. 
It does. And, and Paul's going to bring it up again in Romans chapter 7, where he says, you know, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And what I do is not what I want to do. And I feel like I'm crazy. Who will deliver me from this body of death, he says. You've been set free to struggle. You've been set free to struggle. But something definitive happened. You actually have abilities you didn't have before to fight against sin because you're no longer a slave to sin. This is definitive sanctification. And it really is the central theme of Romans 6, that this bondage, complete domination by sin, is no longer who you are. Okay, But don't go where some people go with that. There are some people, you see, that make sense of the definitive language, but can't make sense of the progressive language. And then there are other people who like so focus on the progressive language, but they don't really think anything definitively has changed. You've put on the new self, Paul says in Colossians 3, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Right? We're not just justified worms in God's sight, right? But as I said, the presence of sin has not been removed. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to say in verse 12, don't let sin reign. Sin is still at work in us, and it often manifests itself through our bodies. Paul is not saying that your body is bad. Listen, I know there's, I hear way too many Christians talk about their bodies like this earth suit that one day we'll be set free from. That is not Christianity at all. God created us physical, and he said it was very good. You will be one day given a glorified body without sin, but the goal of what it means to be human is not to be set free from a body. That's what the Greek philosophers thought, and thus it kind of filtered into Christianity at times. And even today, it seems like more spiritual to just think about like your spirit being set free from your body one day, but that's not, that's not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus had a body, and he was pretty happy about it, right? He, he, he didn't go around saying, oh, if only I could be set free from this body. No, no, right? Now, verse, uh, like I said, verse 6 summarizes this idea you've been crucified. Look at verse 7 is really interesting because verse 7 uses a a very interesting um, phrase in the Greek and and, and it's where this kind of the rubber meets the road with this stuff. He says this, "For for one who has died has been set free from sin. That the word that he uses there, set free, is actually the word that's usually translated justified. It's a word that refers to a declaration. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, you are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave. You've been set free from the dominion of sin and from sin claiming dominion over you. Right? In in other words... You, well, think of it this way. It's like the prisoner who has been set free by the judge after being found innocent. I declare you not guilty and you're now free to go, right? What this means is 
Sin can no longer dictate to you how you are to live. And we've got to learn to be able to start talking back to it. I, I think I like to call this like gospel arguing. You've got to learn how to, how to t- take truth and use it to argue against the lies that Satan and your own heart would love to throw in your face. Why are we saying that hymn? Approach my soul to mercy. You need to be able to learn to say, I may my fierce accuser face, whether it's Satan or my own heart, and tell him, Jesus has died. I'm no longer a slave to sin, therefore sin can't dictate how I'm supposed to live. Right? What does it mean to, to, to believe this? What does it mean to live this? And here's what Paul says. He says, consider yourself Consider yourself dead to sin, verse 11. See that? What does that mean? That means you actually have to believe by faith what Paul says here about the dominion of sin being broken because it doesn't feel like it. And this is one of those places where you run up against, like, who are you going to believe? What you feel or what God says? Because what you feel is, I have no power. I'm a miserable piece of crap, and I'm going to do the same things I've done over and over and over again, and why should I even bother trying? And God says, reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, because you are, in fact, no longer a slave to sin. Oh, yes, we know that you're going to screw up, but you're not a slave to sin. You're not. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Trust his promises. Trust that the Spirit is at work in you to help you fight against sin. Even fighting against sin, even when you lose, is evidence that something has changed about you. And let it encourage you in the battle. But not, we didn't just die with Christ, Paul says here. He says we also live with him in his resurrection, right? I love verse 9. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You actually have to believe something about yourself that you don't feel. Does that seem crazy? It's, it's actually what, what being a Christian feels like you're crazy half the time. Because you're believing what God says about you, not what you feel about yourself. Sometimes we just don't understand the power the Spirit has for us. And sometimes we don't really even ask for it or trust him that he will give it to us when we need it. I think so often we live in this really kind of dejected state because we've failed so many times. But what Paul is saying is you've been set free. Sin no longer gets to dictate to you. Don't sit in that anymore, right? Count yourself dead to sin. What does that mean practically? Well, it means this, prepare for a real fight. A real fight. Um, We are to think of ourselves as dead to sin, even though we don't feel like it. We're to believe that we have strength to obey, even when we don't see it before the test comes. 
As I said, Christians are known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. We have been set free to struggle. And it, it, it really means that what you believe really matters. When he says, consider yourself dead to sin, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher and physician, said this, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. And maybe some of you have read some of those just heartbreaking testimonies of after the Civil War, former slaves, you know, that just... Even though they were free, they still trembled when their former master approached. That's what it feels like to be a Christian. And, and, what, and what God is saying is, you don't have to tremble. Like, sin no longer gets to tell you how to live. You are free legally. Believe it. Trust in it. And know that even when you do tremble, even when you do fall back into those old ways, you're still beautiful in God's sight. Because what he thinks about you is not based on how well you get this. That's really good to know, isn't it? Right? Right. This is a doctrine that we have to, we have to understand, right? Paul wants us to understand it, right? Unless we understand definitive sanctification that the dominion of sin has been broken, I really don't think we'll have strength for the fight of progressive sanctification. And what's worse, we'll think we're crazy the more intense the fight becomes. But we're not crazy. <laughs> God is powerfully at work. And the Bible is full of all kinds of promises about how he will complete the good work he began. Don't lose hope. He's already done the difficult thing of breaking the dominion of sin. Surely he will keep his promise to continue to make us more and more like Christ. It's God's work. It's God's work, sanctification, but we're active in it. It's a fascinating verse in Philippians 2, as, I, as we bring this to a close. God is at work in us, Paul says. God is at work in us, both to will and to do. Have you ever asked God to work in you, to change you, to transform you from the heart? And it's not just a nebulous thing. I'll, I'll just say this, this one last thing. Look at verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. I remember, you know, years ago, everybody had those WWJD bracelets. You know what I'm talking about? What would Jesus do? And, and you know, one level, it's nice to think about what would Jesus do, but you don't have to imagine what Jesus would do. I can tell you definitively, Jesus did what the law said. As a matter of fact, he said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. Okay? And that's what Paul's saying here. Sanctification is not nebulous. The thing we need to do is to understand the word. Understand what are we called to be about. And then cry out to the Spirit to help us be who we're called to be. Right? And then ask one another to pray for each other. You know, it's interesting how often the prayers in the Bible are prayers for this sort of stuff, 
not prayers about the kinds of things we pray for. I don't mean to shame you and say you can't pray about, you know, whether you can get into this class or that or whether you can do, get this internship. Or what. It's fine. You should pray about all those things. God cares about all those things, okay? But the focus of prayers in the Bible is that we would know, like Paul says to Ephesians, how long and wide and deep is the love of God in Christ and that we would have power to grasp it because that's what begins to transform us. We're going to talk some more about uh, chapter, the end of chapter 6 and this fascinating illustration that Paul gives in chapter 7 about being married and how that relates to all of this stuff next week. But let me pray for us and then we're going to have the, the band up here again to do one more song, right?